Hello and welcome to a new podcast from the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. I'm Gavin Cleaver and today I'm delighted to be joined by two authors of a new paper, Research Priority Setting in Barrett's Esophagus and Gastroesophageal Reflux Disease. Gentlemen, please will you introduce yourselves? My name is Dr. Yang Ang. I am a full-time anesthetist consultant at South Royal Hospital Manchester. I'm also an honorary reader in the Manchester University of Manchester and uh, I have my special interest in Barrett's Esophagus and Reflux Disorders and also my research interest in this subject as well. I'm uh, Dr. James Britton. I'm a Clinical Research Fellow in Gastroenterology and I'm currently doing a PhD at the University of Manchester and I'm affiliated with Wigan Writington and Lee NHS Trust and Salford Royal Foundation Trust and Dr. Ang is my supervisor. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. So, perhaps you could set the stage for us a little bit. These these disorders, gastroesophageal reflux disease and Barrett's esophagus, what are they and roughly how many people suffer from them? Gastroesophageal reflux disease is arguably the most common disease encountered by the gastroenterologists. It is equally likely that the primary care providers will find that complaints related to reflux disease that contribute a large proportion of their practice. GORD or GORD or GERD in American term should be defined as symptoms or complications resulting from the reflux of gastric content into the esophagus or gullet and beyond sometimes into the oral cavity, including the larynx or lung, God can be further classified as the presence of symptoms without erosions on endoscopic examination or non-erosive reflux disorder, or God symptoms with erosions present or erosive reflux disorder. So recently, this systemic review found the prevalence of God to be about 10 to 20% of the Western world with a lower prevalence in Asia, and the clinically troublesome heartburn is seen in about 6% of the population. Barrett's esophagus has been classified uh, using the BSG definition as esophagus in which any portion of the normal distal squamous epithelial lining has been replaced by metaplastic columnar epithelium, which is clearly visible when you do an endoscopy above the gastroesophageal junction and confirmed histopathologically from biopsies. It predisposes to the development of esophageal cancer, which once invasive carries a very poor prognosis. In fact, the latest five-year survival data from Cancer Research UK suggests that it's less than 13% over five-year survival. Research assessing the true prevalence is somewhat limited by the need for invasive endoscopy to diagnose either heartburn disorder or paracesophagus. Two European studies have reported a general population prevalence of 1.3% or 1.6% you know, for Barr's esophagus, it is a little bit higher in the USA, up to 2%. And I guess the most important thing are the risk factors for GORD symptoms vary. It is higher risk in male, in older age group, people with central obesity uh, of Caucasian race who are smokers and with a strong family history. James, would like to add to this. Um, no, I think you summarized it very nicely, I think. Um the take-home message here really is these conditions are extremely common and the, the current Barrett's patients currently face, and it's worth mentioning, long-term endoscopic surveillance. Uh, as you rightly mentioned, um, patients with Barrett's have a, a small lifetime risk of developing esophageal adenocarcinoma. So, and the evidence of this long-term surveillance is relatively poor in the sense there's no RCT demonstrating its efficacy and, and current retrospective sort of cohort and comparative studies do suggest it correlates with earlier staging in, in sort of improved cancer survival, but that's not yet been been proven. So 
And we've got a, a large amount of patients with reflux and a subsequent, and also a large amount of patients with Barrett who are under, uh, the patients with Barrett are undergoing long, long-term surveillance. And what I was probably worth also saying is the, Yang's mentioned prevalence, but the, the incidence of Barrett does also seem to be increasing. Um, and you could argue this is because of we are doing more endoscopies, but actually if you look at some of the studies, if you control for the, the, the increase in endoscopy, um, I think we are actually seeing a true rise here of, of incidence. So when we're determining avenues for future research for these, these two diseases, how are research priorities typically determined? And is that process changing at all, especially with regards to patient involvement? Typically, if you look historically, research is funded by government, so public money, and charities or, or industry, so medical pharmaceutical companies or um, sorry, medical device companies or pharmaceutical companies. Um, now, if you look at there's some, some evidence historically to show that past financial constraints on, on public research spending has perhaps then led to greater links between researchers and industry and you, conceivably that's then had an impact on the areas of research chosen and really what unclear is who ultimately decides what is a research priority and why do some areas of research receive funding and focus and perhaps other areas of research are overlooked. So in terms of how is that changing, it's actually in the Lancet, as a landmark paper in 2000, um, Deborah Tallon and um, colleagues looked at uh, the disease setting of osteoarthritis and they looked to see what is cu currently being researched um, in terms of registered uh, clinical trials and they also asked the research user and by that I mean patients um, in this situation it was GPs, rheumatologists, physiotherapists, they asked them what they thought was important in terms of research priorities and they found this huge mismatch between what was actually being researched and what the research user wanted to be looked at further. So um, this paper was probably one of the sort of instigating factors, uh, one of the main instigating factors, which has led to patient and public involvement in research priority setting. And the, the sort of leading light of this has, has been a, a organisation called the James uh, Lind Alliance. This is a, a UK-based sort of non-profit making organisation who have developed a methodology for involving patients and public members in research priority setting. Um, and up to date, I think they've now published probably 40 papers looking at um, setting top 10 research priorities and in patients and public members are involved in every step of this priority setting process. And it's their methodologies which have now been recognised by um, uh, NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, who, who who actually fund the Jameson's Alliance infrastructure. So these are recognised methodologies which we have used in the disease testing of gourd and Barrett's esophagus. So in terms of this discrepancy uh, between what patients and research users expected and what the actual research priorities were, how did you approach that as a problem? In which way did you feed that into your paper? The methodologies are a bit of a mix in terms of quantitative and qualitative, but predominantly qualitative in the sense that we initially launched the project at a uh, National Barrett Symposium and there were patient and professional groups present at that symposium who were we invited to a workshop 
on research priority setting. We then identified a steering group, a group of people with professional and non-professional backgrounds to overlook this project from start to finish. We then conducted an initial survey. This is an, an ideas gathering survey, survey to some extent, where we ask professional and non-professional groups to um, give us up to five uncertainties um, that they would like to be priorities for future research. The initial numbers, we had 170 respondents from the initial survey, 80 professionals, 90 non-professionals, and they, alongside a, an initial workshop, generated 629 uncertainties. All these uncertainties were then downloaded completely verbatim, so word for word, and then they were essentially crunched down into a, a long list of, of 50 research questions. Um, and then the, the, the whittling down process then continues. So these 50 research questions are reflected of the original uncertainties. They then are reviewed by a professional subgroup to determine are they true unknowns or do we actually know the answer to some of them. So that was whittled down from 50 to 33. And it, 33 was our final long list. And then there's another survey round. And this, this second survey round, again, engages patients and professionals in equal measures. And this is a ranking survey round, so we then ask participants to rank in order of their priority. And that whittles the list down, and we got it down to 22, and it was the final 22 which were deliberated over in a, in a combined workshop, again, professional and non-professional groups, to ultimately decide on the top 10 priorities. So from the process, it's a, it's a gradual whittling down of uncertainties with patients and professionals on a level playing field um, and involved at every stage. I feel that the the process has advantages and disadvantages, you know. The advantage, maybe I should talk about the advantages, you know, would be a level playing field for both patient and professional groups. And uh, we also raise awareness of areas that have been overlooked in the past and influence the direction and perhaps the funding for future research towards the interests and needs of the research group or research users. Potentially, it could be a life-changing impact for patients and it is important to get involved in the process and have a stake. There is also mutual influence between both groups of professional and non-professional, you know, patient groups and professional alone. Together, they can interact and actually generate more research ideas. It's, I think the process is quite synergistic. I do recognize there's some disadvantages. Maybe you know James can highlight some of the disadvantages we discovered during the process. Yeah, so I think nothing is um, not, nothing is perfect, but um, some research priority setting exercises have been looked uh, somewhat looked down upon in the past um, because they develop quite broad research questions and research uncertainties that aren't necessarily that well defined, which can then be difficult to generate a a research question from. So we've tried to keep our research uncertainties very specific, so researchers can take them away and, and write a, a detailed research question from. Sometimes these research uncertainties generated by patient groups can form difficult research endpoints to achieve. For instance, if you compare an RCT, so a drug trial RCT, the research endpoints are very clear. Uh, versus a trial looking at, for instance, um, how does um, lifestyle impact um, gastroesophageal reflux disease or how does gastroesophageal reflux disease affect patients. So the research endpoints are, are, 
are often more difficult in priorities set by um, patients. And the other thing is uh, perhaps you, you can only engage people who are willing to be engaged in, the, in, in, in the process and the, the potential risk is overlooking certain patient groups, perhaps vulnerable patients or people from more disadvantaged uh, socioeconomic groups. So those are, I would probably say, the main disadvantages or areas that are, um, not disadvantages, but um, considerations when conducting this. Well, okay, so the million dollar question then, what were the top priorities for research on these two diseases that you identified? And also as well, how closely did clinicians and patients agree with the outcomes of the research priorities? First thing to say is that I think the top 10 covers a range of issues and there was clear consensus in the final workshop, particularly on the, the, the top um, three ranking positions. To begin with, there's a real need for improved risk stratification with patients. So we're in a position here where we've got lots of patients with reflux, lots of patients um, with Barrett's esophagus and a small number of patients with who develop a socialized carcinoma. So we've got a bit of a needle in a haystack position here. So improve patient risk stratification um, and identifying those patients who need screening. And once you've been screened and diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus, identifying those patients with Barrett's esophagus who are at risk of developing cancer. So reducing the haystack in the, the needle and haystack situation is, is key, I think, going forward. So improved patient risk stratification is well reflected in the top 10. And we hope that um, by doing this, patients with Barrett's esophagus, perhaps those at high risk can be, have their surveillance, or high risk patients can be treated, or perhaps the low risk patients can have their surveillance relaxed or even discontinued. And then moving on, the uh, endoscopy is clearly not always welcomed by all patients. And there's a real drive to look for alternative diagnostics, so an alternative screening test, but also a alternative surveillance test for the patients with Barrett's. Um, not only would this reduce the demand on endoscopy units, but it would also be far more acceptable to patients. There uh, seems to be a need to improve our current delivery and service for Barrett's patients. So currently patients with Barrett's esophagus have, a, have quite an ad hoc um, service delivery, so they have their surveillance, this is speaking in terms of the UK NHS, have their surveillance conducted by all endoscopists. Um, and we're wondering the, the priorities have outlined whether a dedicated service to a clinic and a dedicated endoscopy list uh, may improve not just clinical outcomes and clinical endpoints, for example, dysplasia diagnosis rates, but also patient important outcomes such as uh, education, patient satisfaction, quality of life. They're probably the, the ones that were um, mutually clear consensus. Both um, both uh, parties seem to agree that they were they were key priorities. And then you've kind of got priorities which were more patient and which were more professionally orientated, but but nevertheless still had had agreement to be included. And what was important to patients seemed to be treatments of gastroesophageal reflux disease and safety of treatments. So long-term PPI drug therapy, patients with reflux and Barrett's face perhaps decades of PPI drug therapy. And this is becoming, uh, I think, an issue for patients or has been an issue for patients and which has been perhaps overlooked by physicians. There are a number of epidemiological studies looking which do raise 
uncertainties about the safety of PPIs, um, for example, bone health, cognitive impairment, uh, electrolyte disturbances. Um, so it's clearly the, this area needs further clarification for patients. And also alternative um, treatments for patients. So what do we do with patients who are intolerant or unresponsive to PPIs? And, and the current options are, are somewhat limited. Um, and there, there are some newer, minimally invasive and, and um, surgical techniques which are promising but need further larger multi-centre studies with clearly defined endpoints. Moving on to the, the, the last area is, is, is looking at the role of endoscopic therapies and uh, we know that um, flat dysplasia is, tr is treated very effectively with radiofrequency ablation, however there's still uncertainties in terms of the role of uh, APC and cryotherapy in these pathways and that needs further delineation. I guess I can just contribute a bit more here. The top two priorities are about risk stratification, you know, for general population and perhaps individual patients. These are quite difficult to achieve in real life, you know, particularly about a chronic disease with a large population affected. And it's about hundreds of thousands of people with paracetamol in this country. But uh, only a small percentage actually really will develop cancer. Uh, I guess the important thing is whether we can predict, you know, who will get the cancer, who are the high risk groups. And that's what we face clinically, you know, uh, for lots of patients in a clinic. Many people suffer with anxiety, and uh, this is also part of the research that James and myself are conducting at the moment. So I think the, 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 the top two is on risk. And then if you go down the list, it's about treatment, prevention, drugs, and the durability of endotherapy, you know. So it's a really a mixed bag, you know, but all these are important subjects that need to be addressed for this very complex disorder. Yes, absolutely. So finally then, your paper's out there now, so how will you measure success in terms of the adoption of recommendations and your research priorities? I, I think we divide this into immediate term effect uh, priorities generated and then the long term wider population impact. Maybe I start with the immediate term effect and yeah. then James will highlight some priorities. Yeah. So, so the immediate term effect, as highlighted in the James Lynn research priority uh, in the urinary incontinence paper in 2009, that one year after dissemination of the top 10, five studies were funded and covering four top four priorities uh, of the uncertainties generated. Three studies were in development and five new systemic reviews were published since then and five research questions under review by the National Research Commissioning Body so that you can measure immediate effect hopefully in the next few years. And maybe James can highlight the priorities generated. Yeah, yeah so... Um Apart from measuring the immediate effects by looking at what research is then undertaken, some, some research priority setting exercises have been successful purely on the actual priorities they've generated. So, for instance, um, the inflammatory bowel disease um, research priority exercise, they highlighted uh, um, areas which had previously probably been um, overlooked. And, uh, for example, per perianal Crohn's disease affects a minority of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, but it was seen to be so crucially important to those patients that um, it was included. So you can look at the type of priorities generated, um, and you can, or you can look at, you can measure it by the number of priorities which then go on to, to receive um, funding and focus. Another example of a, 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 a priority setting exercise which highlighted it perhaps new or overlooked priorities was the one conducted in asthma and they uh, they prioritised look, looking at the impact of exercise on asthma. So um, I think you can measure you can measure 
impact um, and success in different ways. Um, in terms of how does this then go on to affect the wider population, it, that is a lot harder to, to measure. Um, I think what would be interesting to do would be to, in 12, 18 months' time, uh, well, 20, yeah, 12, 24 months' time, would be to look to see how many of our top 10 are being researched, how many are being uh, have had new systematic reviews, etc., to see what impact this may have had. Um, I think it's also probably worthwhile mentioning that this is a current focus. So, as the research landscape moves on, these priorities hopefully will become outdated because um, questions have been answered, and um, when questions are answered, they raise more questions. Um, so, I think this. This probably needs to be a project which is is redone um, in perhaps I don't know, five, ten years, five to ten years time, to keep the focus for researchers very um, up to date. So this can't be a standalone project. Um, otherwise, we're this purely becomes a tokenistic involvement of patients rather than actually keeping the focus for patients con consistent and up to date. And this is. You know where we like to end is really as highlighted by James that long-term wider population impact is actually hard to measure. I think we do need to repeat the process in five to ten years time. I think James and yeah, yeah. some agreement. It is very difficult to measure once the research are out there, and but I think it's worthwhile repeating the same thing in five ten years time. See what are the changes and what the questions have been addressed and what are the new questions that we need to focus, which is specific and uh, measurable between both patients and research users. Well, it's a must-read for researchers and clinicians in the area, and you can read it now at the Lancet Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time and for joining us today. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank you.